what are your metrics of success, right? How are you going to measure yourself to know that you got to where you got? I, what I love about that whole concept, this is so similar to research science, where, you know, really all you're doing when you develop your experiments is going, okay, when I get to the end of this, am I going to have the answer to my question or not? And if not, then maybe it's not the best experiment for you to do. Um, but setting up what people typically refer to as KPIs or OKRs, like objectives and key results, is you define those up front. You do not get into the middle and then decide what your OKRs are going to be. That's a super important part of strategy. And from an implementation standpoint, you make sure that you're collecting the data you need to measure against those metrics. Welcome to Strategy for Scientists. This is a podcast for scientists interested in hearing about the fundamentals of business strategy through stories. I'm T. Nguyen at the University of California, San Francisco. In this podcast, I talk to Matt Cook, a consultant with the Boston Consulting Group, or BCG, and a UCSF alum. We talked about frameworks and tools that are used to develop strategy. Matt also shared the importance of defining your goals and criteria up front and how it serves as a compass to keep you on the path to achieving your goals. To start off, I asked Matt if he uses the BCG growth share matrix. <laughs> if we use the growth. So uh, I, I have to say, so the growth share matrix, you know, was, you know, ideated back in the 1960s, I think, or maybe it was a little bit later than that. Today, there's a lot more nuance to that particular matrix. So the type of work that we do at a strategy level, um, while it may not apply directly to that growth share matrix, uh, the way it was used back then, we use the format and the structure and the style every day. So we actually spend a lot of our time taking different criteria, first trying to define criteria that are important for whatever we're solving for, whether it's a successful um, market entry or whether it's a new product launch or what have you, and taking those criteria and laying them out. What are the most important criteria and how can we create a framework, whether it's a two-by-two or something else, that allows us to place where we stand today and where we want to be. And all of a sudden you get this clarity around, oh my gosh, well, we want to move this direction. So that means this has to move here. And then all of a sudden it turns into an implementation question. I asked Matt whether it's a useful practice to put pen to paper and whether he would encourage scientists to create two-factor matrices or if it's more of a principle and thought exercise. Oh, yes. No, no. They're incredibly useful. And, you know, not just two-factor matrices, but thinking beyond that, right? So, I mean, I was working on a, a genomics project for um, a large biopharmaceutical company uh, last fall. And part of what we were doing was defining the future genomics landscape and trying to determine what are the commercial opportunities for a traditional biopharma company outside of R&D. And it very much required, <laughs> you know, how, how am I going to think about the data that I get out. And so by using, uh, essentially setting up, it was a two by three matrix and, and defining the different genotypic and phenotypic uses in different areas of health allowed us to lay out, okay, this is a complete picture. These are the different areas you can play in and a, and a portfolio that makes sense is going to be over here in this area. So it's not just a principle, it's something we implement and use all the time. So matrices are a great tool because they lay out your goals and help you define your plan for implementation. But I imagine you could easily get into a rabbit hole. You could look at all the factors, cost versus impact, cost versus time, time versus impact. I wanted to know how to choose the criteria, so I asked Matt about his process for determining useful metrics. 
it's kind of a closed system iterative loop where you, you first have to identify a criteria. I think the first step in all strategy is identifying what does success mean, right? And then you lay out those criteria, and then that is what enables you to create your matrix. Your, your matrix is just a tool to get you to where you want to be. And you essentially come up with this list of like, what are the possible criteria that you do? And then you sort of just start thinking, okay, what's, what's the most powerful way to combine this information that can help guide us? And by setting up a use case, which is, okay, genomic information can either help us in the clinic by helping patients prevent disease, or it can help clinicians decide which treatments to make, and then whether or not you're going to increase uh, like earlier detection, so increase prevention, or maybe you're going to uh, reduce interventions in prevention, for example, with breast cancer and prostate cancer, where there's too much screening. Maybe we'll learn from a genomics future that you know, we're overutilizing. Understanding that information in that context was the most relevant. But often in a brainstorm, you have team members with different interests and goals. Matt tells us that the success is defined by the client. You could be creating different strategies for the same project depending on the stakeholder. It's important to be agile. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you could even come up with a, a matrix to define different types of stakeholders, right? I mean, the, the beauty of the tool is it has myriad applications and it's just amazing when you actually start taking criteria instead of thinking about them as a one-dimensional piece, but how they work together. I mean, this is going to sound silly. I mean, my whole sole purpose for staying in my job right now is I have a simple two-by-two. Two, and on one axis is, do I like the job? And on the other axis is, am I good at the job? And the only way I'm going to stay in this role is if I'm in the upper right quadrant of I both like it and I'm good at it. If either of those drops, I get into questioning territory, and if they both fall into no, I'm going to leave my job, right? But, but I first have to establish that those two criteria are the most important for me. And then I'm able to set something up that allows me to easily see, okay, now I can rank where I am at any different time and then make a decision accordingly. I thought that was a really practical use of a two-factor matrix. It really draws on what we teach with the individual development plan that career satisfaction is dependent on your skills, values, and interests. Well, there's another matrix right there. Skills as the x-axis, interests the y-axis, and values is the size of the bubble. Okay, so to get back a little bit on topic, when Matt talked about brainstorming on some of those criteria, I imagine consultants working late at night. I asked Matt about what brainstorming with other consultants looks like, not in terms of is it with a box of pizza or takeout, but do they write everything down and then rank or vote? How does brainstorming at BCG look different than in a lab setting? One way I've heard it described before, and I think this is true, um, in general, our brainstorming sessions work first as more of a, you're more of a chef, and then the second half of the brainstorming session, you turn more into a food critic, right? So there's this element of left brain, right brain, where the, the first part is somebody's leading the group in the ideas. There's no bad idea. Let's, let's talk about what's, what's possible, theoretically. And then we'll come back later and establish, okay, what are our limitations? And, and, and how do we rank these ideas? I would say in general, that, that's roughly how it goes. But there's always someone in the room who's put in a certain amount of thought in the beginning so that we're not all just kind of like bouncing off the walls you know, going in, in, in mindless directions. I really liked Matt's analogy of being a chef first and then being a critic. 
but it's easy to get caught up in the details and lose the forest for the trees. So I wanted to know, before the brainstorming even begins, how do you know you're solving for the right problem? I learned from Matt that you have to ask the right questions and do a lot of listening before you understand what questions are key. When you talk to people and you ask them, so what are the challenges in your job? What are, what are the things that prevent you from being more efficient? Right? They're going, they know their space better than you do. They're going to tell you in, in, in no uncertain terms about what their challenges are. Now, you may have to read between lines or look at a broader ecosystem, um, but, but typically it's that diagnostic process. It's, and I, I, I just think of it as the scientific method because you're observing and collecting data. And really in, in the consulting world, you do a lot of the heavy lifting. You say, okay, I'm, I'm going to analyze your process. I'm going to come up with as many ideas as possible. I'm going to rank these ideas in, into their, their level of impact. And then together, we're going to sit down and go, okay, these are all the levers you could pull. Which are the ones that make the most sense for you? And then you move forward. Matt then gave an example of how his team designed a workflow for a client that is focused on managing resources and research and development. Sound familiar? It's a lot like how PIs manage resources and research projects. For this particular example, it was a great uh, biotech medtech company that um, had a really robust R&D program, and they were just super enthusiastic, had lots of ideas. Um, and one of the things that really stood out right away is that virtually everything makes it through their commercial gating evaluation, meaning that when someone comes up with an idea, you have to pitch it to the R&D heads, and they have to give a thumbs up or thumbs down of whether or not they want to see it move forward. And it turned out that virtually everything is getting greenlighted. What ends up happening is you've got limited number of resources in your R&D department, and now you've got like an individual person working on five different projects, and there was a lot of waste and efficiency and how they were not just um, letting too many projects through, but how they were staffing the projects and allowing people to be spread too thin across them. About this time in the process, Matt says that he and the team form a hypothesis about possible solutions, but they need to take into account the company culture. Then you you have a hypothesis about, okay, what what could be done to improve? And then the way you test that hypothesis, because you can't really collect a lot of empirical data, as you look at other industry examples where something similar has happened and how a company turned their efficiency around by implementing this type of change, or you, you, you float that idea out to the client and you say, okay, this is my hypothesis. We think this can improve based on our calculations this much. Because even if it would work, if the company culture is so different that it can never be implemented, then you got to strike it from your list. Going along with the parallels to academic labs, I was curious about a situation where a new PI is setting up a lab. Maybe the PI wants to find a project that sticks or is trying diverse projects and collaborations to get data. How can a new junior faculty member streamline projects? What's a good strategy for resource allocation? You know, it'd be like if you were in the lab and not only did you want to have all these collaborations to go on all these cool ideas, but your current papers weren't actually getting published and you were running into trouble, right? You, you have to sort of back up and really preserve. So for them, it was, it was twofold. It was identifying that they needed to reduce the overall number of projects they were letting through the commercial gateway. But the second piece was defining you, they didn't have a good framework of what is a good project to let through the gateway. That was part of the problem too, right? So again, you come back to, okay, we, get, we help them develop kind of a matrix of how can you define a good project? What would be a great project to let through? 
And then even if you end up with 10 great projects, you're going to have to rank them um, and decide which ones are, are, are the most important and, and critical. At this part of the podcast, I asked Matt to give career advice to a young Matt Cook starting out. Matt shares tips on the job search and how to gain experiences to help you enter into industry or consulting. As far as preparing for the kind of job that I'm in now, there, there are three big components. One is you've got to hone your scientific and critical thinking skills outside of science. Try your hand at, at, at case interviews. Get involved. Usually campuses have some kind of consulting club. Um, talk to people who are also interested in the same career that you might be interested in and work together, right? Find an accountability buddy. Um, so there, so there's, there's that networking piece of, of gathering information and, and exploring outside of your comfort zone or your space that you know about in science. The second thing I would say is prioritize your, your values and, and what you want. This is a bit more philosophical and broad than just preparing for this job, but I think a lot of people who come from a scientific background think that if you just do good science and keep moving forward, life's going to take you to the right places. As much as I'd like to think that's true, you're going to have to prioritize and set up in your own matrix, your own personal values, right? And they're going to change. I did two postdocs. Uh, and worked at a startup in between. By the time I got to the second postdoc, the things that I wanted were different than when I had started grad school. Um, knowing what those are, not being afraid to change them, being honest with yourself about that um, is, is a really important step. And then the third one is, you know, try to get some outside lab experience in what you think you're interested in. Previously, I was really interested in being in academia, and so I tried to do as much teaching as I could. Once I shifted towards thinking about consulting, I needed to go learn more about business, and that meant not just sitting in seminars that are helpful and hearing about people who had gone through the same process, but it was trying to maybe get involved in um, uh, uh, whether it's a club or maybe even um, work in a startup experience. And it's really ultimately what led me to feel comfortable about stepping outside of the realm of science. Don't let the fear of, oh my gosh, I'm not sure I could do it stop you. Just take a smaller baby step if that's what worries you. That's solid advice from Matt. I enjoyed talking to him and hearing examples of his work at BCG. And of course, the science mixed in there. I hope you enjoyed listening to Matt's stories and his process of defining goals, prioritizing them, and then implementing them, all with a goal in mind. During our conversation, Matt talked about a book called The Lords of Strategy. It's an intellectual history of modern consulting. It delves into the Harvard Business School and the three major consulting firms. If you're interested in the history of strategy, he recommends it. Thank you for listening to Strategy for Scientists. Interested in learning more? Check out the online lectures co-produced by iBiology and the UCSF Office of Career and Professional Development. We'd like to thank the Burroughs Welcome Fund and the NIH National Institute of General Medical Sciences, or NIGMS, for grant funding. Tune in for more stories about scientists using strategy.